since we were not able to meet last week, Sunday evening, we wanted to uh, record Revelation chapter 11 for you and post it online so that we're not gonna miss out on what's gonna take place uh, in the end times. Why don't we take a minute and pray before we jump into our study today. Uh, Heavenly Father, we look to you, especially during this difficult time. We thank you again that you're God, you're sovereign over everything. And we ask you for your grace, and we ask you for your healing, and we ask you, Lord, uh, for you to work in our heart as a nation and bring about the changes that you desire and the healing that you desire. We pray as we look at this study tonight that you'd give us um, understanding. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Each week before I jump into a new chapter in the book of Revelation, uh, I try to give you a little bit of a summary of where we are, get us up to speed with where we are. And so I first of all want to, again, lay out the general timeline that I think is going to unfold in the end times. And then I wanna talk about the individual chapters in the book of Revelation. So from my understanding, the general timeline is this, that we are in what is called the church age. And we don't know how long the church age is going to last, but I don't think it's gonna be much longer. Then the next thing on the prophetic calendar, from my perspective, is that there's going to be an agreement signed with a world leader, between a world leader and Israel. It's going to be a seven-year agreement, an agreement of peace. Now, some Christians believe that before that agreement is signed, the rapture is gonna take place. In other words, Jesus is gonna return. He's gonna call up to be with him, believers in him. The Christians are going to be raptured at that point. But I don't believe that that's going to be the case. I think the rapture is going to happen a little bit later in the timeline. And when we get there in the book of Revelation, I'll tell you where I think it's going to take place. But in my timeline, generally speaking, we're in the church age right now. The next thing I'm looking for is a seven-year agreement with a world leader, an agreement between Israel and this world leader that is called the Antichrist. In the middle of that seven-year agreement, this world leader is gonna break the peace and he's gonna desecrate the offering and sacrifice that's going to be revived in Israel and he's going to begin persecuting the Jews. After he persecutes the Jews, his persecution's gonna spread toward Christians. Now this is all gonna happen in the last half of the seven-year tribulation period. At the end of that seven-year period, we believe that Jesus Christ is gonna come back in order to reign on the earth. Now sometime during that last three and a half year period, the judgment of God is going to come upon the world and then Jesus will return at the end of the seven years and he's going to reign for 1,000 years and then at the end of that time, there's gonna be one final rebellion that's gonna take place where humanity is gonna rebel against Jesus. Jesus is gonna win that battle and then the final judgment is gonna take place at that point. So the general timeline is we're in the church age. There's gonna be a seven-year agreement signed with an antichrist. He's gonna break the agreement in the middle of the seven-year period. Persecution will break out. Then I think the rapture will happen at some point during that three-and-a-half-year period. Then God's judgment's gonna come upon the world. At the end of the seven years, Jesus will return. He's gonna reign for a 1,000 years, and then we're gonna find the final judgment. Now, lining that up with the book of Revelation. Revelation chapters one through three, I believe, represents the church age. And so when you go to Revelation one through three, you, you discover that the book of Revelation is being addressed to seven churches that are located throughout Asia Minor. Uh, 
or what was called Asia Minor. Now, I think that these churches to whom John is writing this letter are real churches. I think that these churches also represent churches of all ages or types of churches, but I think also that they are a timeline. And I believe that these churches are unfolding in a timeline, and if that's the case, we are in the church of Laodicea, which is the last of the seven churches to whom John is writing. In chapters four and five of the book of Revelation, we have a scene where Jesus and God are together, and they are getting ready to pour out some of the judgments that are going to be coming upon the earth. Now, this is a pause, and one thing to understand about the book of Revelation is that generally it's unfolding in terms of a timeline, but there are various chapters that are kind of pauses, uh, various chapters where you get a scene of what's happening behind the scenes, where God is at work, and you just get a glimpse of what's taking place in the heart and mind of God before the next thing unfolds. And chapters four and five are this pause. Now, chapter seven is also a pause, and chapters 10 and 11, and we'll be talking about 11 today, is also a pause. The rest of it kind of unfolds normally, but there are these pauses. So in one sense, I think Revelation chapters one through five all represent the church age. When you get to chapter six of Revelation, we begin some of the judgments that are coming on the world. Now, the book of Revelation has three types of judgments that you'll read about, and they all unfold uh, throughout the book of Revelation. The first type of judgments are called the seal judgments. There are seven of them. The second are the trumpet judgments. There are seven of them. And the third are the bowl judgments. And so as you read the book of Revelation, these various judgments begin to be unfolded, what's going to be taking place on the earth before Jesus comes back to rule. So chapter six are the seal judgments, and this is the beginning of hardships that are going to come on the earth. Now, these seal judgments, I think, are what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 25, when he talked about the fact that there'd be wars and rumors of wars, and he described these seal judgments as being like birth pains. When a woman is pregnant, as she gets closer to delivering the, the baby, she begins to experience birth pains. And the thing about these birth pains is as you get closer to the birth of the child, the birth pains get stronger and they get closer together. Now, I think this is the nature of these first seals that are opened as Jesus opens these seals like in a scroll, one after another, we find some of the judgments are gonna get worse and they're gonna get closer together. Now, I think the first six of these judgments, the first six of these seals, are things that Christians are actually going to have to go through. In fact, I think they've started already. But when the Antichrist signs that seven-year agreement, I think things are gonna get it much, much worse. We're gonna see a greater intensity of these things. So what were the seals? Well, the seals included false prophets, <clears throat> including the Antichrist, wars, pestilence, famine, death, and some other things. And again, I think we're going through these things now, but things are gonna get worse during that seven-year tribulation period. Now, the six seals, again, we're gonna go through, but the seventh seal actually has tucked within it the seven trumpet judgments, and we're not going to be part of that. Now, when you get to chapter seven of Revelation, we have another pause in heaven. 
a sealing of sorts takes place. 144,000 Jews are given God's mark upon their forehead, and these 144,000 are going to be protected. These 144,000 are going to form the basis of the millennial kingdom when Jesus comes to reign. Also in chapter 7, though, I believe we come to the rapture. You find a scene toward the end of Revelation chapter 7 where a host of people from every tribe and tongue and nation appears in heaven. I think that's the rapture. It happens right after the sixth seal is opened. We are taken up to be with Christ in heaven to rule with him. And the reason that we're taken up is that God has not destined that we experience the judgments that he's about to pour out on the, the earth after that seventh seal is opened. Now, what are the seals then? Well, when we get to chapters eight and nine, we read about the seventh seal being opened, and these open up the seven trumpet judgments, and those represent the wrath of God or the day of the Lord or the day of the Lamb. It's called various things throughout the pages of the Bible. Believers are already in heaven at this time, and here are some of the things that are going to happen as these trumpet judgments take place one after another, A third of the earth is going to be burned up. A third of the oceans are going to be destroyed. A third of the rivers. The sun is only going to shine for, or is going to be darkened for a third of the time. So will the moon and so will the stars. These are the trumpet judgments and the first six of the trumpet judgments. The most terrifying of these judgments that are going to be poured out on the world at this time are these demonic beings that are released from the pit or the abyss. I think they're actually from the center of the earth. They're going to be released upon humanity and they are going to be causing horrible pain and suffering upon the people that are living on the earth. Now, these trumpet judgments, the first six of them are going to occur toward the end of the seven-year tribulation period. Now, the last time we met, we were in chapter 10, of Revelation, and chapters 10 and 11 are a pause that take place in heaven. We find in chapter 10 an image of Christ or an angel that's standing with one foot on the water and one on the earth, and once again, we have a scene during this pause where Jesus is getting ready to pour out the judgments to come. It's just a glimpse of things from God's perspective before the rest of these judgments, these bold judgments are going to be poured out on the world. Now, when you get to this seventh trumpet, tucked within the seventh trumpet are the seven bold judgments, and that's the end of the matter where things get really, really bad on the earth. Today, we're in chapter 11, though, of Revelation, where we're still part of this pause, and something happens here that begins to set the stage for the rest of what's gonna happen in the book of Revelation. Why don't you follow along if you have a Bible in Revelation chapter 11. We're going to begin in verse 1, where John writes, I was given a measuring reed like a rod with these words, go and measure God's sanctuary and the altar and count those who worship there, but exclude the courtyard outside the sanctuary. Don't measure it because it is given to the nations and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Now, 42 months is three and a half years if the years are 360 days each. And so what we're describing here is that for 42 months or the last half of the tribulation period, 
God says here the Gentiles or the non-Jews are going to get control of this area, this plaza area around the temple. Now there's some interesting things about what John is being asked to do here. John is being asked to measure a sanctuary and an altar, and then he's told don't measure the surrounding area. What's interesting about that is that he is not being told to measure a temple that's coming. What this implies to me is that the temple does not need to be rebuilt for the Antichrist to be revealed. Sometimes people wonder, well, wait a minute, it indicates in the Bible that the sacrificial system will be started up again and that would require that the temple would be rebuilt. But John is told, no, all you have to do is measure the sanctuary and the altar, in other words, the place where the sacrifices are going to take place. Now, what we discover is toward the second half of this tribulation period, the Antichrist, we know, is gonna desecrate that area and he's gonna begin reigning there and so John is told, don't measure that. Now, currently, right now, three religions regard that area in Jerusalem as being holy. Of course, the Jewish nation does, that's their capital. Islam does as well. They believe that it was from Jerusalem that Muhammad returned up into heaven. And then, of course, as Christians, we believe it's a sacred place as well. And so for the time being, all three religions kind of claim this area for themselves. But in the last days, the Bible indicates that there will be a revival of the Jewish sacrificial system that will be started up again. And I believe that that's gonna happen at the beginning of the seven-year period. But in the middle of the seven-year period, the Antichrist is gonna take over that area and desecrate that area and begin to set up shop in that particular area. Now, last week that we talked, or last week we met, I talked about the fact that that there are efforts to rebuild the temple. I wanna read about a group that's putting their efforts toward doing this. It's a group called the Temple Institute. And reading from Wikipedia, and I confirm that this is correct, what they've written about this, the Temple Institute, known in Hebrew as Makran HaMikdash, is an organization in Israel focusing on the endeavor of establishing the third temple. Its long-term aims are to build the third Jewish temple on the Temple Mount on the site currently occupied by the Dome of the Rock and to reinstate animal sacrificial worship. It aspires to reach this goal through the study of temple construction and ritual and through the development of actual temple ritual, objects, garments, and building plans suitable for immediate use in the event conditions permit its reconstruction. The problem with this group trying to set this up is that currently right now, this Temple Mound, which is a 35-acre place, a mountain where the temple used to be, is currently has a temple of, for Muslims there. And so even now, it's under Muslim control. And the idea of beginning a sacrificial system is gonna be very, very offensive to the people that are in that region. What's interesting to me is just this past week, I was sent a link that indicates that Israel is planning on reinstituting the sacrificial system using a temporary altar, and that they wanna set up this altar and they wanna sacrifice a paschal lamb, a lamb for the Passover, 
And if they do this in the near future, which I think is going to take place, it'll be the first time it will have happened in 2,000 years. And to me, this would be the start of, of this reinstitution of the whole sacrificial system that could really lead things toward the Antichrist returning. Now, in Daniel chapter 12 and verse 11, we read about the fact that the Antichrist is gonna stop this sacrifice from taking place in the middle of the tribulation. In Daniel 12 and verse 11, we read, from the time the daily sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. And so he's going to, again, in the middle of the tribulation period, put a stop to the sacrifices. But of course, in order to put a stop to the sacrifices, they have to be started once again. And I think that that is gonna happen very, very soon. Anyway, John is told to measure these things and it implies that this temple is gonna be set up in the near future. Let me continue reading though in Revelation, here in chapter 11 and verse three, where we read, I will empower my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1260 days. Again, we're talking about 300 or three and a half year period. And so at the very same time that the Antichrist desecrates the sacrifice and he begins to persecute the Jewish nation at the exact same time in the middle of the tribulation, we read about a couple witnesses that are going to be prophesying for the Lord during this time. Revelation 11.3 describes them. It says they are dressed in sackcloth which sackcloth is the clothing of mourners. It's the clothing that people would wear if they were humbling themselves and, and before God. And this is something that indicates maybe the nature of the message of these two prophets, these two witnesses. That it's a message of humble yourself before God. The judgment is coming. The end is near. Those kinds of things. John continues in verse four and describes them in this way. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And so they're described as being like olive trees, two olive trees and two lampstands. Now that's kind of interesting. These are prophets or they're witnesses. They're dressed in sackcloth and they're described in this way. Well, this isn't the first time we read a description like this. It happens also in the Old Testament in the book of Zechariah chapter four and verse 14, where the prophet Zechariah writes, these are the two anointed ones, he said, who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. This is almost the exact same idea. And in Zechariah, it does describe that these ones are like olive trees as well. Continuing here in Revelation 11, it says, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Now, what's significant about this is that in Bible times, uh, people were anointed by God with olive oil. And so you remember, for example, that King David was anointed by Samuel. When you got anointed with oil, it was a picture of the Holy Spirit setting you apart for something. And so David was anointed and it meant he was set apart to rule over Israel. And so these two, they're called olive uh, trees, but I think it's a picture of the fact that they've been anointed by God to proclaim this particular message through the Holy Spirit. Now these two again are gonna preach in Jerusalem for three and a half years. 
Continuing in verse five of Revelation 11, we read about them. It says, if anyone wants to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and consumes their enemies. If anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. These men have the power to close up the sky so that it does not rain during the days of their prophecy. They also have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague whenever they want. And so these two witnesses who are going to be prophesying have the ability to perform some amazing miracles. Anyone that opposes them will be struck dead through fire, it says, that comes out of their mouths. And I think this is literal. It's the judgment of God against anyone who tries to oppose them. And they have the ability to strike the earth with plagues or to perform a variety of miracles as signs that their message is true. There's been a lot of discussion over the years about who these individuals are. Uh, Many feel that they are Moses and Elijah, and I think that may be the case. Here are some reasons why. First of all, we know that Elijah never died. Do you remember that he was caught up into heaven in a chariot of fire? He never died. And from the book of Hebrews, we read it's appointed for every man to die at least once. And so it's likely that that's that's the case. Uh, Moses, of course, he did die, but there's a mystery surrounding his death. If you read about the death of Moses, we read that he went on the mountain and he, he did die, but God buried him and no one knew the location. There's just a mystery surrounding why did God do it that way? And again, some have suggested there's something about that that relates to the fact that Moses is going to come back. Second reason people feel it might be Elijah, at least, is that he shut up the skies which is what these guys are going to be able to do. Elijah's one of the few people that he prayed it wouldn't rain and it didn't for three and a half years or for a period of time. And, and so this is what's happening. And so again, it fits Elijah. Moses, of course, was associated with the plagues of Egypt. And so we read here that they'll have the ability to turn water into blood. That sounds very familiar. And so again, it points to the identity of the second witness as being maybe Moses. Also, Moses represents the law, and Elijah represents the prophets. In other words, these two individuals represent almost the entire Bible. Another case for their identity being these two is at the transfiguration. You remember how Jesus went up on the mountain with a couple of his closest friends, his disciples, and suddenly he began to glow with his, his pre Uh, incarnation glory. He began to shine like the sun. And then two individuals showed up at that, that mountain with him. They were Moses and Elijah. And many feel like they were discussing the fact that Jesus was, although he was going to the cross, he was gonna come back and reign one day. And so these are the two individuals that show up with Jesus. And then finally, in Malachi 4, we read that Elijah's gonna come back before the great and terrible day of the Lord. In fact, in Malachi 4, verses 4 and 5, we read about both Moses and Elijah. We read, remember the instruction of Moses, my servant, the statues and ordinances I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Look, I'm going to send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord. And so there's a lot of evidence that these two prophets in Revelation 11 are Moses and Elijah. But there's one other possibility, and there's a lot of weight toward this possibility as well, that one of the two is Elijah, as we have already talked about, but the other one might be Enoch. 
Enoch, of course, we read about in Genesis chapter five. What was unique about Enoch is that he was someone who never died either, or at least it implies in Genesis five that he didn't die. We read that Enoch walked with God and then he was no more because the Lord took him. In this case, he would be the only other person besides Elijah who didn't die physically, who somehow has been maintained by God in heaven until this very day, until this very moment. And then we read as you continue in Revelation 11 that both of these are going to die before the story's done. What's interesting about Enoch is that Enoch was someone who prophesied about the end of time. And that's interesting to me because Enoch's in the first book of the Bible, yet he was speaking about some things that would take place at the very end of time. We read about that in Jude chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, where we read, and Enoch, in the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied about them. Look, the Lord comes with thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict them of all their ungodly acts that they have done in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things ungodly sinners have said about him. And so you have somebody here again that lived not long after Adam, a descendant of Adam, he, by the way, had a grandson named Methuselah who was related to Noah and actually probably died the very year that the flood took place. And so one of his descendants died that very year. And he, Enoch, spoke about the return of Christ one day. And so there's a lot of evidence that perhaps he's the one. Now, what are these prophets talking about or what is it that they're preaching? Well, one of their messages might be don't take the mark. And I know that one of their messages is repent for the Messiah is coming soon. And part of their message also is probably the gospel. In fact, I think the main audience for their message is probably the Jewish nation. These two are two Jewish prophets, and I think they're primarily prophesying to the Jewish nation. It's preparing the people's hearts for the return of Christ and the great revival that's gonna take place when Jesus comes back. But toward the end of that period of time, toward the very end of the seven-year tribulation period, these two are going to die. This appears in Revelation chapter 11 and verse 9, where we read, and <clears throat> I'm sorry, in Revelation 11 verses 7 and 8, we read, when they finish their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them, conquer them, and kill them. Their dead bodies will lie in the public square of the great city, which prophetically is called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. And so it indicates here that this beast, I think it's the Antichrist, who is possessed at this point by the devil himself from the abyss, I think he's possessed. He's gonna have the power to kill these two witnesses in Jerusalem where they were preaching. The people, though, are gonna respond in an amazing way. In verse nine, it says, and representatives from the peoples, tribes, languages, and nations will view their bodies for three and a half days and not permit their bodies to be put into a tomb. Those who live on the earth will gloat over them and celebrate and send gifts to one another because these two prophets brought judgment to those who live on the earth. 
This indicates that really the whole world will watch as these two are killed. They will not be permitted to be buried. They're going to lie there for three and a half days. Now, in, in Jewish culture, you're to bury the person the same day that they died, but they're not permitted a burial. And after they are killed, you have a scene here that kind of looks like Christmas. Everybody is so happy, they begin exchanging gifts, there are parties, these two are finally gone, these two are finally dead. And everyone celebrates. By the way, these two are not the only prophets that are going to be around in the end times. I think these two with their miracles and with the power of their words are, are going to be a, a great sign to the world that God is alive and that the things they're saying are true. But we know from other scriptures that there are going to be other prophets during this time prophesying other things. In addition to that, some of these prophets are going to have the ability to, to do miracles as well. And they're gonna deceive a lot of people. It's gonna be a very similar scene as what happened with Moses in the Old Testament. When Moses went to Pharaoh and he turned the water into blood, some of Pharaoh's magicians were able to imitate that. They were able to perform the same miracle. And when Moses turned his staff, his walking stick, into a, a serpent, they were able to do the same thing. In the last days, there are going to be a lot of false miracles as well. Competition, I consider it to be, to the real message. Paul talks about this in 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 9 through 12, where we read, the coming of the lawless one is based on Satan's working with all kinds of false miracles, signs, and wonders, and with every unrighteous deception among those who are perishing. They perish because they did not accept the love of the truth in order to be saved. For this reason, God sends them a strong delusion so that they will believe what is false, so that all will be condemned, those who did not believe the truth but enjoyed unrighteousness. And so you have this scene here where in the last times these miracles are gonna take place and people are going to be deceived. But Paul writes that the reason they're deceived is that they didn't love the truth, which I think has parallels in our culture today. I just think people don't want the truth. They don't love the truth. They, they love believing lies. And therefore, it says God sends a deluding spirit. In other words, I think what's gonna happen is that God's gonna lock them then in this place of deceit so that they might experience the judgment that is coming. Let's continue reading, though, in verse 11 of Revelation 11. But after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, so great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. They went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies watched them, at that moment, a violent earthquake took place, a tenth of the city fell, and 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. The survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Take note, the third woe is coming. It was obvious to everybody that these two guys were dead. And in the Jewish mindset, at least during the time of Christ, people believed that if someone was dead for three days, there was still hope that they might come back to life. The theology was that the spirit of the person stayed by the body for three days, but at the end of that time, it was hopeless. 
This is why the miracle where Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead was so significant because it was the fourth day. Well, these two prophets are, are in Jerusalem and they've been dead for three and a half days. And so it was hopeless that there could be a resurrection and then all of a sudden God calls them up into heaven and the very moment it happens, it says there's this earthquake, a violent earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. We read in other places in the New Testament related to the end times that there's gonna be a massive earthquake that's gonna really be a worldwide type of an event and it's gonna split the city of Jerusalem in two. On this occasion, it says 7,000 people will die and suddenly fear is gonna strike everyone when they see this happen. They're gonna have to wonder what just happened here and these two prophets went up to heaven. Again, it's a confirmation that their message was indeed true. Now the verse says here that they gave glory to God at this point. I do not believe that this means that they were saved. I think this is an example of people recognizing that God actually did this and they acknowledge that he's the one who did it but they're not willing to put their trust in him. An example we have of this is in the Old Testament of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was humbled by God and he came to a point where he acknowledged the Lord God is the Lord of the heavens and the earth. And he gave glory to God, but there's no evidence that Nebuchadnezzar ever trusted in God as his God, that he ever put his faith in him as his God. And I don't think the people of the world will do so either. Continuing in verse 15, the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has been the kingdom of our Lord and his Messiah and he will reign forever and ever. The, the 24 elders who were seated before God on their thrones fell face down and worshiped God saying, we thank you Lord God, the almighty who is and who was because you, were you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry, but your wrath has come. The time has come for the dead to be judged and to give the reward to your servants, the prophets, to the saints, and to those who fear your name, both small and great. And the time has come to destroy those who destroy the earth. God's sanctuary in heaven was opened, and the Ark of the Covenant appeared in his sanctuary. There were flashes of lightning, rumbles of thunder, and an, earth, an earthquake and severe hail. Now this says the seventh angel blew his trumpet and I mentioned earlier that within this seventh trumpet are the seven bold judgments. This is what is coming. This is what John referred to as the third woe that is coming. And so this is not yet the end of the story. However, it is in a sense the end of the story. I mentioned to you before in the book of Revelation that chapters one through 11 lay out the whole story. And then when you get to chapter 12, we start in the middle of the tribulation and go to the end again. And what's happening here is we see the announcement that Jesus is gonna reign. At this moment when the seventh trumpet is blown, we read that Jesus Christ now is given the authority. Jesus Christ at this point is given his kingdom. He is coming down to the earth, but before he does so, there'll be these final judgments. But this does indeed end the first half of the book. We also read, of course, in these verses about the final judgment that's going to come and eternity that is to come. And so chapters 1 through 11 really summarize everything that's going to take place. 
Now in the fall, Lord willing, I'd like to pick up Revelation beginning in chapter 12 where we get more detail about the things that are going to happen. We also see the unfolding of these bowl judgments. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're again grateful that you're sovereign and and you're in charge. And we acknowledge that you're holy and right and just in all the things that you do. We do ask you as we get closer to the end times that you draw people to yourself. We wanna be used by you to lead many to faith in Christ. And Lord, as we anticipate this as well, we wanna have lives that are prepared to meet Jesus face to face. So give us the grace, O Lord, to live this out because you've said in the book of Revelation, blessed are those who read and apply the things they learn. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.